Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. I've had a lot of people writing me emails asking why we are still covering the former president so much. I welcome this conversation that we're about to have. It's important to cover the de facto leader of the Republican Party who's setting the agenda for 2022 midterms and potentially the 2024 presidential election. We cannot ignore him. And frankly, this week, it would have been pretty hard to ignore former President Trump anyway. Over the weekend, Trump made some pretty extreme claims. First, he said at a rally that he'd pardon the January 6th rioters if he won re-election in 2024. And another thing we'll do, and so many people have been asking me about it, if I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. And later, he said that former Vice President Pence could have overturned the 2020 election results. Plus, reporters have surfaced several memos that show just how far Trump was willing to go to use the federal government to help him stay in power. And all of this has happened as civil and criminal suits involving the former president have been stacking up. And the congressional investigation of January 6th is still underway. Yet Trump's plans to run again in 2024 seem perhaps more apparent than ever. What might all of this mean for his potential campaign? And what do Trump's actions then and now tell us about the vulnerability of our democracy? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. The comments about him pardoning the insurrectionists if he does become president again is part of this concerted effort that we've seen over the past year to whitewash and rewrite the facts of the January 6th insurrection. Jacqueline Alamini is a Washington Post congressional correspondent and author of our early 202 newsletter. And the former president now is taking it a step further than he's previously gone, saying that he would outright pardon these people who committed serious crimes and are being charged by the Department of Justice. But the the former president has given some clues along the way. You know, he has consistently praised Ashley Babbitt, an insurrectionist who was fatally shot while participating in the riot, criticized the police officer who shot and killed her, and who, by the way, was not prosecuted in any way by the Department of Justice. Babbitt has since become pretty lionized by this group of what some people call the Insurrectionist Caucus, but members of the far right and Trump surrogates, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, these very fringy members of the House Republican Conference. Even the way that Trump first addressed the rally as it was playing out, I think should have given some clues for where we are today. He refused to to get out and publicly and explicitly ask for these People, these rioters, people who were committing crimes to leave the Capitol, described it as a peaceful event. And again, in the year since, he has used the word love repeatedly. 
to describe the tone of event, and he's praised those who did breach capital security in support of his quest to overturn the results of the election. And so I think this president views anyone who supports this un, these unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud and this elaborate pressure campaign that he devised in the wake of his loss to Joe Biden is an ally in his book. But is it a winning electoral strategy? There is disagreement on that. Right now, the most galvanizing issue in the Republican Party is the issue of, quote unquote, election integrity, which is sort of coded language for we won't say that Joe Biden is not the illegitimate president, but we will say that there might have been some fraud and that there were some, quote unquote, irregularities in the election. There have been countless audits, research, investigations into these claims. Nothing has panned out, but this is an issue that has caught fire. And I think the former president continues to latch onto that issue. He just uses language that's less coded. So, you know, you have Republicans going out there this week and people like Lindsey Graham, his on again, off again, on again, off again ally saying that the president shouldn't be talking about this. This isn't a winning strategy. This, you know, the Republican Party is the party of law and order. But in the same vein, the people who are criticizing Trump right now and telling him not to keep looking back are still supporting this idea of election integrity. So I think it's a really fine line here. To the point of election integrity and election reform, this weekend, Trump also suggested that then-Vice President Mike Pence could have overturned the election on January 6th. And his statement came in response to ongoing efforts in Congress to make changes to something called the Electoral Count Act. So can you just explain what that act is and what it does? So there has been conversations that have picked up some momentum about this 1887 Electoral Count Act, which governs the congressional certification for the election of the president and vice president. And I think in tandem with the former president's recent comments still claiming that the former vice president had the constitutional right to overturn the results of election has just further fueled some of the momentum and conversation of this bipartisan group of senators that has been meeting to discuss revisions. Um, you even had Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell telling reporters that this 1887 act is flawed and needs to be updated. The best way to characterize how I feel about the Electoral Count Act is that it is flawed and, and does need to be fixed. Uh, where it goes from here, we'll have to see. I think the bipartisan group is working on trying to come up with a proposal. The question now is how uh, lawmakers are going to proceed with what exactly rewrite they're going to agree on. But one of the ideas that has been discussed does actually bring into consideration a broader range of election-related proposals, which you know, Democrats are more likely to sign on to after the collapse of a lot of the voting rights legislation that they've previously put forth. It is not a replacement. And I think why we keep saying that is because we don't want anyone to suggest who supports it that it's a replacement for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or other voting rights legislation that has important components of it that would provide a, a basic baseline and important protections for people across the country who are trying to exercise their fundamental right. So both sides agree that this this act is flawed. However, does it actually leave room for a vice president to overturn election results to send them back to the states, as Trump suggests? There is some agreement that there is a bit of ambiguity there and they can tighten the language. This is a topic that's disputed by legal scholars, that a vice president is empowered to reject 
the state's electoral votes. But I think the bottom line is there is not a actual underlying case here or any proof of election fraud that would ultimately enable the former vice president to have sent back the election results. So is the idea on both sides of the aisle that they want to eliminate that ambiguity completely? Or do they have different perspectives of what they want out of a change? Yeah, there are some different perspectives on that. And, you know, there are some people who do want to continue to see the vice president play a a role, but more ceremonial or symbolic. But there's others who would like to see that language completely eliminated in some way, but still maintain this symbolism. But the constitutional gray zone is a fear that both Democrats and Republicans have going forward. It's really interesting now to think about the relationship between former President Trump and former Vice President Pence. Where does that stand now? Is it is it a safe thing to assume that Pence would not be his running mate again in 2024? This is something the the former vice president and his team are grappling with in real time as some members of his team are participating and cooperating with the January 6th committee. And their relationship between Trump and Pence has had its ups and downs. They eventually seem to have made up. Pence has really tried to remain quiet and, and not be critical of the president, but has consistently repeated that he made the right decision and that he didn't regret what he had done as do his closest advisors. But I think sort of the unspoken elephant in the room is that it's highly unlikely that I think the former vice president will be Trump's running mate. He has his own electoral ambitions and potentially is interested in running in that 2024 primary as well against Trump. So there is a recognition at the same time that while Pence feels like he did the right thing, he still needs to appease the base, which was infuriated by his refusal to block uh, and intervene in the electoral certification. But this base is still powerful enough for Pence to feel like he, he still needs to win them over and placate them in some way. So in addition to these comments by Trump, he was also in the news this week because the New York Times did some reporting about Trump's serious efforts to see if our national security apparatus could seize voting machines. What did we learn from that reporting that, combined with Trump's statements over the weekend, really paints a picture of how hard Trump has tried to retain power back in 2020? Yeah, these memos that that keep get coming out from various outlets, Politico, the New York Times, and then this morning we just published a brand new scheme that was devised by these outside lawyers that were working on behalf of the president really do illuminate the desperation and the spaghetti on the wall attempt for the the president to overturn Joe Biden's victory. The most extreme proposals that we've seen so far did recommend finding a way to seize these election machines by either using mainstream channels of the administration, the Department of Defense, the DOJ. This morning, we've reported that a Um, group of lawmakers were actually briefed on January 4th in the Trump Hotel on yet another scheme to seize unprocessed raw data to prove that there was foreign interference in the election so that Trump could then take action based on that. And, And some of the names on this memo people who were proposed to actually implement this plan. One of them is actually a, a senior lawyer in the military currently serving. So it, it goes to show just how pervasive and how far these plans permeated. 
everything we've talked about thus far really highlights how, taken together, it seems like Trump's commitment to stay in power and the avenues he had to potentially make that happen really reflect a sense of fragility in our democracy. How does this moment test our system? What should we be learning from it? That is the consistent theme that we keep hearing in our conversations with lawmakers and staffers who are all involved in the investigative effort behind the committee, that they are shocked by the one degree of separation some of these people plotting essentially what they view as a coup had from the president, that these conspiracy theories made it into memos that were on the president's desk in the White House, and that there were only a few people who were sort of fortuitously or maybe serendipitously in the right places that actually put a stop to this. People like Bill Barr, people like the vice president, Mike Pence, people who ultimately said no, and that if not for these people, some of these plans might have actually have been implemented and things could have gotten very out of control. I think that is the takeaway that those who are on the January 6th committee would, would like to see resonate, whether or not they believe that the investigation is a waste of time or a sham or they buy into some of the Republican messaging to at least appreciate what you said, the fragility of our democracy. There's more of my conversation with Jackie to come. We talk about some of Trump's legal woes and fundraising efforts right after this. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. To pivot a little bit here, I want to talk about some other investigations that Trump is facing outside of Congress, which are investigations related to some of his his businesses. So where do those things stand now? And I'm asking because they could relate to his ability to run in 2024 or his potential legal complications that he'll be facing up until that point. Yeah. Oh, boy. There's a, a long list of investigations. There's the criminal investigation being led by the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, who's looking into accusations that Trump tried to improperly influence the outcome of the presidential election in Georgia. But as I stated, we will treat this case like any other case. You know, some investigations you do and no charges are brought because that is the right answer. Some investigations you do and it's only appropriate to bring charges. That's the way we'll treat this case. Then there is an investigation into the business practices of Trump and the Trump Org by New York Attorney General Tish James. She most recently submitted an extensive filing detailing how much investigators have found so far on Trump and his adult children. Um, and we are looking at whether or not the Trump Organization inflated um, its real estate assets in Westchester County for the purposes of benefiting from insurance and um, from mortgages. And then the same properties, the very same properties, deflated them for the purposes of evading taxes. There's the civil investigation, which is separate from the criminal investigation with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, which focuses on Trump's use of statements of financial condition in seeking bank loans and insurance policies. As I mentioned, we indicted uh, Mr. Weisselberg, the CFO, um, and the Trump Organization. That investigation is ongoing. We are working with the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, and also with the uh, new Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. 
On top of this, my colleagues just reported yesterday that Tish James has subpoenaed the General Services Administration for information about how the agency selected Trump's business to lease the historic post office that is now home to the infamous D.C. hotel, the Trump Hotel. And then, of course, there is the January 6th investigation, and there has been talk there that ultimately they could potentially make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice pending some of their investigative findings. If I've learned anything in the past five years of hosting this show, I've learned that investigations take a very long time. And so my question is, are these likely to be completed before he ramps up a 2024 campaign or even before the 2024 election? There is a push to make sure that the January 6th investigation gets done before the midterms, because in the case that Democrats potentially lose their House majority, uh, the committee would be disassembled by Republicans, and that would that would be the end to the committee's work. And so there's a, a rush, a scramble to get this done before that might happen. If, if the congressional committee makes a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, it's unclear how long it would take for the DOJ to decide whether or not to prosecute the referral. And then if they do decide to prosecute it, how long it'll take from there. And as we've seen so far with some of these investigations taking place in New York, it's already been years of investigating business practices. But I do think that there is this quiet undercurrent of concern that some of these investigations could jeopardize whether or not he runs again. Although one theory that some people have is that these investigations are potentially further the former president's desire to run again because maybe holding political office could shield him from some of the consequences of investigators' findings. One hurdle he's not facing right now is is fundraising. He started the year with $122 million in political cash, which seems like a lot of money for somebody who has not made a formal campaign announcement and who is embroiled in all of the legal and investigative troubles we've just mentioned. So is this normal for, for a politician to have so much political cash? It's normal in some sense. I think what is surprising is that after everything Trump has done and after all of the scrutiny and investigations that this money is still coming into him, that he is still one of the biggest draws and fundraisers in the party, despite all of the liabilities and the baggage that he carries with him. So I think in that sense, it's a bit unusual, but it shows, I think, why people have come back to him, why there has been this forgiveness. Someone mentioned something interesting to me, a source on Capitol Hill yesterday, which is that a lot of the corporate money that Republicans depend on dried up after January 6th. And so while there was an immediate backlash to the former president, there was then potentially this sense that, well, the former president has never been dependent on this corporate money that we've been dependent on. And if we want to survive and the money's drying up, then maybe we need to depend on his small dollar donors and this sort of grassroots apparatus that he's converted into a massive money-making machine. Because he does have an army of small dollar donors along with a few major financiers and loyalists, because uh, there is this campaign finance rule that that forbids the Trump's PAC from accepting more than $5,000 uh, a year from any individual. So his wealthiest supporters then give to this allied super PAC uh, that's raised more than $10 million since October. So I know you can't predict the future as none of us can, especially when it comes to Trump, who has, is politically unconventional. But what do you imagine, based on your reporting, will happen heading into 2024? Do you expect that Trump will in fact run? Will he make that announcement 
imminently, what do you expect to see? It's something I'm watching closely, as are most political reporters across America. By all intents and purposes, it seems like he is going to run based on his public, private statements, the way that his uh, campaign super PAC and allied super PACs are all organized and being run. That being said, I, I, we've been watching the brewing tensions between him and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pretty closely. The former president has expressed some annoyance that DeSantis hasn't acquiesced to his status as the de facto leader of the party and the former president, and it isn't being deferential about Trump potentially running for re-election. So that is also a factor. And then I think I'm also watching conservative media really closely. People like Tucker Carlson and, and personalities on OAN and these right-wing outlets have become kingmakers in some sense. And I, I will be tracking this, you know, how other influential people in conservative media will be moving going forward and, and whether or not they'll sort of start throwing their weight behind who they want to see run in 2024 and, and, and lead the party. All right, Jackie, well, we will watch those things too. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Allison. For a more detailed rundown of former President Trump's pending legal investigations, check out Friday's edition of the Early 202 newsletter. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 